It's another Friday. That means it's time for DC Signal to Noise. I'm John Harris, News Director for Farm Journal, along with our seer of signal and noise, Jim Wiesmeyer from Pro Farmer. And a special guest this week, as promised last week, Paul Niefer. You know him as the Farm CPA. He is with Clifton Larson Allen. He is going to answer some of your questions uh, about what we anticipate from a, a Biden tax plan. There's a lot going on around that. And uh, Paul's able to separate a lot of signal and noise for us on that topic. So we'll get right to it. Again, a reminder, if you're listening to the podcast, you can join us live as we record it 2 p.m. Eastern every Friday. Join us on the AgriTalk Facebook page and you can uh, watch us live and in person and submit questions and comments as we go along. So we invite you to join us for the live stream of this every Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, but Paul, let's let's get uh, started with you first of all and and uh, I'll ask I'll act like chip and you know before we get into the substance tell us about CLA what do you guys do and what do you offer well CLA is a full service uh, professional services firm you know we don't just do tax returns and audits or anything like that uh, we have a wealth advisory we do quite a bit of what we call uh, biz ops which in, it could be a part-time CFO all the way down to doing bookkeeping and then we do tax credit work uh, you know really anything related to that farm financial uh, matters uh, we definitely our firm can handle all right and you see paul's columns on agweb.com all of the time enlightening about uh, a variety of tax issues and paul's going to stick around for the whole conversation here so let's start off with what do we know uh, what do we know about a potential biden tax plan as it uh, impacts agriculture and and how do we know it yeah. Well, you know, Biden, when he was on the campaign trial, plus the fact that now we have a full Democratic majority in the House and the Senate, uh, we have a pretty good idea what they're all interested in. Uh, we already know on the corporate tax side, they at least want to bump the rate up to 28 percent. Now, this could be positive for farmers if they bring back a graduated tax rate. And what I mean by that, under the old before we had the change, about four years ago, the first $50,000 was at a 15% bracket, then a 25 and so on. If they brought in a 28% bracket, but they made the first 100,000, maybe at 10% or 15%, that might still be okay. And then over on the individual side, Biden wants to increase the tax rate up to that old 39.6% bracket that we had starting at $400,000 of income. So 400,000 for singles and married couples. And then on capital gains, qualified dividends, they want to increase it, or he would like to increase it to 39.6% once your taxable income went over a million dollars. So that, you know, for a lot of farmers, maybe that's not a big deal, uh, but we're certainly hearing a lot of chatter from both uh, Biden and maybe Senator Wyden and so on to possibly either curtail 1031 exchanges and make it only available if your income's under 400,000, they keep using the 400,000 or completely eliminating it. So that that would certainly not be very good for farmers. And then lastly, I'll, I'll talk briefly about uh, the estate and the gift side. The, all the Democrats, it sounds like, including Biden, wants to drop the lifetime exemption, which right now is about 12 million. They wanna drop it down to the old three and a half million or in addition, they want to eliminate the step up in basis at death, or in addition, they wanna have a capital gains tax at death on all your assets, similar to the Canadian system. So let's say a farmer has got some grain, equipment, land worth, uh, he paid, let's say a million dollars for it and it's worth $10 million. On his final tax return, he's gonna calculate a capital gains tax of $9 million, but there may be some exemptions for farms. It may not be due until the heirs actually sell it, but that's really gonna dramatically change estate and gift tax planning uh, for our farmers out there because it's it's gonna bring a lot more assets in and they're gonna face an immediate tax. Right now, a lot of them don't face a tax for multiple generations, but this could be a very much an immediate tax. So those are some of the key proposals that we know are floating around. We know that Senator Wyden, who is now, you know, the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, he very much is in um, favor of having some type of capital gains tax on appreciation during lifetime, not at death, but during lifetime. So 
it's going to be very interesting over the next uh, 10 months or so. And I think for a lot of our farm families, we faced a lot of gifting for them back in 2012 when we thought it was reverting back to the old numbers. I think you're going to see an extreme amount of farm gifting being done between now and the end of the year. Now, you use the word or to separate those. Does that mean that that we won't see a combination of those items? No, we we may see the estate exemption drop down to three and a half million plus no step up at death. What I was saying, or if we have a capital gains tax at death, that means the heirs are getting a step up because the, you know, the person that passed away, you know, reported a capital gains. So that's why it's sort of, it may all be there, but it may not affect it exactly the same way. And Paul, when do you think, uh, I think some people tell me this will be, if it's done this year, it'll be marked back to January 1 this year, or is that I, the right timeline? I Typically what we see, you know, this likely if it's going to happen, it'll be in December. It's almost always in December when you have a major tax law that gets changed. And I don't think it'd be retroactive. Okay. Uh, you know, historically, they've not made too many of these retroactive. If they made it retroactive, uh, believe me, they can count on losing about 50 House seats on the next election, oh, in my okay. opinion. That's a good point. Um, uh, of course, I'm hearing from some sources that we may even see legislation start to move once the Senate clears the uh, impeachment trial. Um, ha how high on the priority list is this for the administration, Paul? I, I think until they get a firm feel on where the pandemic is going, I, I, I think we, we've certainly seen the Treasury Secretary Yellen come out and say, they're not really interested in imposing tax increases right now. I, I think they want to see, you know, is the pandemic going, I mean, are we going to get herd immunity? Um, is the economy really going to start recovering? Uh, so I, I think it's not top priority, but I think it is a priority later on in the year. Now, of course, uh, agriculture has in the past had a quite a fight over the estate tax, uh, of course, calling it the death tax at that time. How significant is this um, compared to some of the historic fights? Because you're, you're reaching pretty low if you're taking the exemption down to three and a half million plus this this loss of step up in basis is huge, isn't it? Yeah, to me, the, the loss of step up in basis is much more critical, in my opinion, than the exemption amount going down to three and a half million. We can through planning, through using entities, doing lifetime gifting and so on. Um, you know, that difference between 12 and three and a half, I think we can mitigate quite a bit of that, but losing step up or having an immediate tax when somebody passes away where the heirs have to pay that tax. Now, the administration, I think Wyden are indicating that's gonna be on liquid assets. So if you have stocks, bonds, you know, you bought a bunch of uh, Tesla three years ago you know, when it's trading for 30 bucks a share, now it's $800 a share. You're going to be taxed on that, but you can always sell in those shares to pay that tax. Whereas on farmland and those type of assets, again, likely there's no immediate tax, but it's going to be calculated if and when those heirs finally sell it, then they're going to owe the tax at that point. So I'm going to make sure I'm tracking it. Correctly. So uh, stocks, bonds, things that you can liquidate, you would be owed immediately upon death. Something like uh, a business or a farm or something like that, you would not have to pay the uh, tax on the, the increase until that is transferred, correct? That's what we've seen floating around in the proposals. Again, you know, who knows what the final thing will be. Also, we see Possibly, you know, family farms might have, let's say, a $5 million exemption. Uh, the problem is if they make that exemption too high, then the wealthy are going to say, hey, we want to buy farmland. That's going to drive up the, 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 the value of farmland, which then, you know, younger farmers and other farmers may not be able to uh, purchase that property. You're going to have to pay higher cash rents. So, uh, you know, we always like to see some exclusions, I think, for family farms, but I don't think we want to make it too big. Because that 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 is the reality. So what do what should farm owners and and uh, farm property owners be doing now to prepare for this? I, I think they definitely need to be meeting with their advisors, such as us or whoever it might be, to actually look at probably making some gifts of farmland. To me, farmland is is probably the the appropriate thing because if it's going to be maintained in the family for multiple generations. 
we really don't care about a step up in basis on farmland because we can't depreciate it. It only has value from a tax standpoint if we sell it later on. So if the plan is not to sell it for one, two, three generations, uh, losing that step up is not that bad, but losing that extra eight or $9 million of exemption that we have now, that would be bad. So uh, like I say, I think we're gonna see a large amount of, of a family farms land, farm land being gifted between now and the end of the year. All right, Omar checking in saying he agrees wholeheartedly with that $5 million exemption in that. Um, before we move on to PPP, anything else on this that we need to track, Paul, or anything else you want to get in here, Jim? I, I, I think those are the key ones. There's some other nuances. You know, there's some benefits on some certain credits, but uh, for what I've seen, most of those credits probably are not going to apply to farmers. John, relative to capital gains, if you have losses, what, what happens? Okay, so on losses, those will be able to offset capital gains. So if you ended up at death, had a million dollar loss from something and you had a $2 million gain from something else, you would net those together. Okay. Now, if you pass away and you end up having a net loss, capital loss carryover, because you can't deduct more than 3,000 a year, under current law, that disappears. Your heirs do not get the benefit of that. So, so you'll still get the benefit of offsetting uh, capital losses against capital gains. All right, well, let's jump into PPP because you've got some observations on that, um, some limitations that uh, farmers are running into, Paul. Yeah, the, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, we call it the CAA, had a provision that allowed Schedule F farmers, self-employed Schedule F farmers, to apply for a PPP loan or get an updated PPP loan based on line nine, which is gross income off of the Schedule F. Under the original rules, they had to look at their line, I think it was 34, 31, 34, which was net income or net loss. And for most farmers, because of the way the tax return sort of flows income and expenses, a lot of them showed a net loss, even though they had plenty of income over on 4797. So what's happening, these farmers, as long as they show at least $100,000 of gross income on Schedule F, they're able to get that full $20,833 loan. But what's happening Let's say a husband and wife farm together. A husband farms or files a Schedule F. A wife files a Schedule F. They're allowed to get that maximum PPP loan. Whereas if they filed as a partnership under the current interpretation by the SBA, at least as far as we can tell, and, and that Schedule F showed a loss on that partnership return, they don't get any loan at all. So, you know, there's a lot of angst in the farming community. And, and certainly we've been dealing with, oops, sorry about the telephone. I've uh, been dealing with uh, members in Congress and so on and, and some of the farm uh, associations trying to see if partnerships, because they file Schedule F, they're self-employed, they likely under the law probably are entitled to the same provision. So that's going on right now to see if SBA is gonna agree with that and allow those partnerships to increase their PPP loan. Well, Jim, we're going to get into the same thing on some other issues shortly. This is the kind of thing that happens when you see a, a rule quickly put together, like we've seen with some of the COVID aid packages. You've got uh, details like this that are seemingly simple, but you can't see them when you're trying to quickly put together that rulemaking. Exactly. And and the when the, the actual code, if you want to call it the code, is very, very vague. It just says other qualified self-employment person. So that's why we think and we know the farm community is 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 a proponent of allowing those farm partnerships because a they file a schedule f b they're self-employed and as long as they're an individual if the partner is an individual then they should qualify for the same relief we think all right well i'll move on to some of the uh, politics and policy issues now but uh, paul's going to stick around for the rest of the conversation so if you do have uh, another tax question drop it in the uh, comment section there. On, on one final thing on the tax, yeah, that'll be done through a budget reconciliation. So uh, ab above and beyond the one for COVID aid, the, you know, the Democrats will have an opportunity for several uh, of them, but they're going to have to be picky. And you still need 50 plus one in the Senate. So if you have a number of 
Senate Democratic senators who get nervous on this, they, there may have to be more compromises than, you know, what they're letting on right now. Does that make sense? Yeah. You, you, Paul? Yeah. And certainly, you know, Manchin in, in um, West Virginia and a couple of these other Democrats that are in states where Trump carried the election, but especially by a wide margin. Uh, some of these uh, tax increases we're talking about probably won't go over very well in the next election. Yeah, indeed. All right, well, let's get on to some of these other issues. First of all, Jim, um, Tom Vilsack and Michael Regan still in a holding pattern, um, likely, I guess, until the Senate gets done with the impeachment trial. Yeah, and it looks like uh, this weekend, it looks like next week, although we have holidays, you know, coming up, that uh, I think it's just a matter of time now that once we, you know, get the focus off of the uh, impeachment trial in the Senate and maybe a last ditch move on the 14th uh, Amendment, then they can uh, focus full time on uh, what they were really, you know, you know, meant to do is, you know, legislate. All right. So, uh, but again, we expect a very quick um, and lopsided vote on those two nominations whenever it does come, whenever the Senate clears its schedule, correct? Yes. No No problems that I've seen uh, on, on either candidate. All right. Well, let's get into the uh, drama in the House Agriculture Committee this week. And and Jim, I'll let you kind of drive this because earlier this morning, you ship Florida talked with Congressman Austin Scott out of Georgia, who's a member, a Republican member of the House Agriculture Committee and close friend of Congressman David Scott, a Democrat who is chairman of the House Agriculture Committee uh, from the same state. So um, I'll let you tell me where you want to start with this conversation. Sure. Well, overall, first, it was a markup session for the ag portion of the budget reconciliation package. And I don't want to get too details on that. But there's where it surfaced. Of course, they're going to get more food stamp funding and, you know, partitioning out, you know, more and, uh, you know, easier uh, applications, etc. But within that, there's going to be several billions of dollars for socially disadvantaged uh, farmers, uh, for you know particular uh, ethnic and 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 racial groups, and that's uh, uh, you know what brought a lot of uh, you know sensitive issues to that markup hearing, as well as the ranking member on the Republican side, uh, you know Mr. Thompson, uh, <clears throat> really lambasted uh, the uh, Democrats for not being bipartisan, and that's where it really opened up. Uh, John, it got pretty raw uh, uh, at times. And so we interviewed, uh, Chip Flory and I interviewed uh, Austin Scott because he spent a lot of time at the hearing going through the proposed um, income transfers, if you will, uh, and, you know, forgiving loans uh, plus 20% uh, to the socially you know, disadvantaged are, you know, minority farmers. Uh, and uh, uh, in that, and you'll hear some of the cuts there, he flat out said uh, it, it's reverse discrimination and he had some constitutional concerns about it, John. Yeah. Well, uh, and I was going to ask you, Jim, on that 120%, why didn't they just say, we'll give you 100% and make it tax-free like they did with PPP loans? I mean, why are they giving... 120 percent and then turning around and get the taxes back i mean that doesn't make any sense to me either yeah well see this is where when you write it behind closed doors without having we've seen that you know you know in the in the tax in the co-op you know problem yeah, the yeah. 199a's when you don't vet this stuff out unintended consequences service you know, surface. And Austin did say, you know, uh, that he wants to find out what, what the lineage is on that 20% because he didn't know. Yeah. Well, let's start with uh, what Congressman Scott had to say about the uh, partisanship showing up in the uh, House Agriculture Committee and, and quite frankly, across the House um, uh, this past week. Here's uh, Congressman Austin Scott. And so I'm, I'm fortunate to serve on two committees, the Armed Services Committee and the Ag Committee, both of which have historically done things in a bipartisan manner. And, and candidly, I think that, the, that most of the Ag Committee members prefer to do things in a bipartisan manner, whether they be Democrat or Republican. But I think that they're getting the orders from, the, uh, from up top. And, um, you know, this, this is coming from the White House and, and through the Speaker, and they're being told what they're going to do. And if you look at the clip, you'll see where uh, when we won 
when I say we, when Republicans had a, had an amendment accepted, it was um, Cindy Axing, a Democrat from Iowa, voted yes, so that the the producers that were impacted by the storms in 2020 in her in her district could get a disaster payment. And if you go back and you watch the the committee, I mean, they spent about an hour, you know, trying to figure out how to how to undo that vote, you, you know, just because they didn't want uh, a single Republican amendment to pass. And I think that's indicative yes. of what's going to happen. And that's what we're hearing is happening in all, all committees. And don't you think there's a possibility that that language, the approved amendment, could be stripped out of the final bill? Absolutely. I expect they will strip it out in the rules committee. So there you go, Jim. That was a part of your conversation with Congressman Austin Scott today. Um, you talked a lot about uh, this proposal to forgive loans uh, to several minority groups, uh, uh, farmers. And let's hear what uh, Congressman Scott had to say about that. Okay, so let's let's keep 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 a couple of things in mind here. One is okay. um, in 1999 uh, started in between uh, 2011. Between 1999 and 2011, $2.2 .2 billion was paid out from the federal government to settle to settle claims of discrimination. So there has already been a settlement of $2.2 .2 billion um, that, that the last appropriation was in 2010. They put language before us yesterday that they have inside the COVID relief bill. So again, I want you to, I want, I want you to keep in mind, this is inside the COVID relief bill right. that says that... Um, the secretary shall provide a payment in an amount equal to 120% of the outstanding indebtedness of each socially disadvantaged farmer. Now, these are direct loans mm -hmm. through the USDA, and these are also the, the larger loans that are, that are bank loans that are guaranteed by, that have some type of, of guarantee from the USDA. So again, you're talking about 120%. The uh, only people that are eligible for the debt relief, which I'm, I'm opposed to it, whether it's for, I, I would be opposed to this no matter who it was for. Uh, mm -hmm. But there, there's a there's a list of six groups, African-American, American Indian, Alaskan Natives, Asian, Hispanic or Pacific Islanders. So if you fall into that group, then the USDA is going to forgive the loans and give you 20 uh, percent of whatever your outstanding loan balance was. There you go, Jim. That's uh, his comments on uh, that program. And uh, I guess from my perspective, uh, and you and I talked about this a little bit before the show, um, there are disadvantages uh, that have been put in place for, and the congressman talked about it, for uh, black and Native American farmers. Um, there is, in my opinion, room to do something there. However, rushing something through that doesn't have a lot of planning, doesn't have any bipartisan planning uh, in the middle of a COVID relief plan, to me, doesn't seem to be the place to do it. Well, also, and recall that he mentioned the Pickford case in which the, the U.S. Right. taxpayers paid out $2.2 billion. And of course, it was supposed to be even more, but there were not follow-through appropriations in, in, in my you know history of that. But during those payments, you had to prove discrimination on this time, you do not even have to prove, you know, discrimination. And that's where you get into this area. I'm no lawyer, thank goodness. But that gets you into this area of reverse discrimination if you don't even have to have a requirement in order to get a, a, a grant, if you will, or, you know, forgiving of a, of a loaning. It gets you into very murky area. Uh, bottom line, John, from a policy perspective, there was no transparency on this. And later on, we'll probably have other cuts, but you could hear the frustration uh, from Austin, uh, uh, Austin Scott and, and Thompson and others saying, you know, Biden and the Democrats talk bipartisanship, but they're governing very partisan wise. And that's not going to bode well for the future. Yeah, and I, I, there are certainly cases where the Republicans obstruct something and then cry, oh, well, you know, what about the unity? That's not the case here. The Republicans never had a voice in this uh, in this bill at all, in this spending at all. It was uh, thrown at them 24 hours before the hearing. Um, they were quickly shut down on any discussion of uh, most amendments except for one. 
Um, and as a congressman, and you mentioned, that could possibly get stripped out uh, in the final bill. So, um, you know, while there are sometimes you can question the Republicans on, on saying that, well, you know, what about unity? In this case, they really are getting something thrown at them and, and for lack of a better term, shoved down their throats. And look at the words they're using. I suspected this, but now it's been proven. The signal I got early on is when the Democrats started to use the word equity, not equality. Right. The reason is that equality, it's usually you even. You get what other uh, groups or individuals get. But with equity, it really gets you into redistribution. And that's what it looks like what they're going to happen. We saw shades of this in the Obama administration, and it looks like, uh, you know, President Biden learned a lot from the pitfalls of the Obama administration once it, you know, gets to redistribution. So, so they're having at it. Yeah, and you asked Congressman Scott uh, about that specifically. Do you want to uh, lead into this, Scott, here? Is that the hearing? Uh, this now this is your when you asked him about the difference between equality or uh, between yes that, well know. that's I just laid it up right there is it, was I on the right track is this is what they're sensing and and he responded to that well well yes but there's a difference in in someone giving a verbal apology and someone sending a check for 120 percent of some mm -hmm. of, of someone's outstanding loan balances because of the color of their skin. Uh, if yes. you listen to the debate, I mean, I ask about a friend of mine's wife, and the and the bottom line is, uh, you know, they they acknowledged it would depend on, you know, if she was a if she was a woman of color, and I asked, you know, if she was from Mexico, would they be forgiven? I think Mexico, and they said yes, and I asked, well, if she's from Canada, and they said no, and so it's this is, I mean, what they've done in this is by definition discrimination. If you're not one of the six people, one of the six. Uh, races or ethnicities that they outline in the legislation and you have a USDA loan, you're going to be treated differently than the six races and ethnicities that are, that are outlined in the, in the legislation. And so uh, I would tell you that discrimination is wrong no matter what. Um, I, I, I do not think that according to the courts and, and I would tell you the constitution that, that we as Congress are supposed to treat uh, anybody different because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. And this, this bill by definition does that. And so uh, what we're seeing now that, that I did not think we would see in this country is a move towards reparations. And if you, if you get in, I mean, candidly to pay off somebody's note and give them a 20% bonus on top of however much they had, had borrowed. I mean, by definition, that is what that is. Right. Right. Yeah, because, you know, here, this could the, the, the same logic, Congressman, could be applied to the effort to, uh, you know, forgive student loans. Could it not to, to go that extra 20 percent? Well, it, it could absolutely be done that. And or, or they could say, well, we're going to forgive them for people who went to uh, public colleges, but not private colleges. Or we're going to uh, relieve them for people who went to uh, uh, colleges, th these colleges and, and not and not. Uh, faith-based colleges as an example um, so so I think that what what you've got here is is a very dangerous uh, it's not even a path that we're on anymore it's actually a road because it's pushing ahead and I can tell you the Democratic Party doesn't have to have a single Republican vote to pass this stuff um, I'm hopeful that there's some uh, Democrats that still have some common sense and recognize the damage this does to America and uh, but but if you can if you do this and I said this in the committee hearing, you know if you're gonna if you're gonna take the loans of African Americans, American Indians, Alaskan Natives, Asians, Hispanic, and Pacific Islanders, and you're gonna uh, give them 120 percent of what whatever their outstanding loan balance is on USDA farm loans, then then what's to stop you from doing it on housing loans? And uh, I, I can tell you. Um, you know, this is a dangerous, dangerous path. It's a dangerous path for the country. And, and candidly, I think it's illegal and unconstitutional. And, um, you know, only if someone has been, has been discriminated against, uh, that's wrong. And we'll get, and, and I think the magnitude that you had a two, $2 billion settlement through the pick cases is, is indicative that these things happened and that was settled. 
So when, when did this last discrimination happen? Because Barack Obama, Joe Biden, right. and candidate Secretary Vilsack were the ones in control for six of the last 10 years. Yeah, it's Congressman Austin's got uh, a path or a road, not a path. Yes. What he says on this. And and our friend uh, Sean Haney up at Real Agriculture in Canada is quickly canceling his federal loan application. <laughs> now that he knows he's getting left out of it. And, John, the key word that I initially brought up and then he used it was reparations because yeah. – Interestingly so, see, the Democrats are pretty good schedulers. They, they key up things. Next week, a House Judiciary Subcommittee on Wednesday, February 5th, uh, you know, 17th, is going to have a hearing, and they're going to discuss H.R. House Bill 40. Now, that's a bill in their terminology, quotes here, to establish a commission to study and consider a national apology and a proposal for reparations for the institution of slavery, among other provisions. Yeah. That was the background as far as why we asked him that question on reparations. Yeah, so very interesting con uh, conversation there with the congressman. Uh, Paul, were you going to jump in there with something? I, I was going to have a couple comments. So, you know, if I'm part of this group, one of these groups, one of the six groups, should I go out and try to get a CCC loan on my crop right now? Because... I have a pretty good idea if this goes through, it's going to be forgiven and that's actually cash. So they're going to get a double benefit. They get the cash plus it's forgiven. And well, then also, yeah. I guess, you know, if I'm a farmer right now, should I go out and get a DNA test and find out if I'm part of that group? You know, so the, those are some of the, you know, the law of unintended consequences is certainly going to apply here. We'll expect your results by next week, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've had one of those tests. I'm not one of those groups. So. Uh, okay. Maybe Jim is. <laughs> and, you know, does uh, Elizabeth Warren qualify? Anyway, yeah, I, I think uh, she would. Uh, the, 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 we got into this in AgriTalk, and I don't know whether it's on any of the clips, John, but from a competitiveness nature, those individuals, if they get the 120%, would be at a competitive advantage in some cases, uh, land buys and things like that, and, and marketing-wise, and that gets you into, again, another issue. Although I would point out some of those, not all, but some uh, have been a at a competitive disadvantage at times that, uh, under no fault or control of their own. Um, so there is an issue there to discuss. Yes. Um, but whether I, as I said earlier, I don't think this is the right, right remedy or the right venue for the remedy. Not in a COVID aid bill. And yeah, there should be transparency, debates, hearings, uh, research, again, and uh, grounds for discrimination that you can prove, yes. And as, as, uh, uh, as, as Mr. Scott kept on saying, uh, the $2.2 that was paid out, you had to prove discrimination. In this case, you do not. Right. Well, uh, this, all, this discussion all centered around the COVID relief package that is being put forward um, and discussing in particular the ag portion of this latest COVID relief package. Jim, what is in there uh, b besides this uh, relief for minority farmers? Well, a lot of it is the, you know, relief for minority farmers and, uh, you know, whatever number they want to put on the final, you know, on the food stamp program or, you know, you know SNAP. That's primarily uh, when it, you know, comes to agriculture. You're not going to have the, the uh, traditional, uh, you know, CFAP payments, et cetera. In fact, uh, uh, Austin, uh, uh, Scott wants to know, uh, why the pause and wh when when are farmers going to get those on hold, you know, payments? And he he thinks I think he signaled that he sees a shifting of some of the funding uh, that is still uh, you know to come. Uh, you know, based yeah, we can on play that cut if you want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's go ahead and hear these words from Austin Scott. Uh, I'm I'm disappointed in the way things have gone so far. We are we are halfway through February. I have had only one committee meeting. If you look at the schedule that the Democrats have put out, we're not in Washington much this year. And so I think very little legislation actually passes. Uh, if we are able to get it, it will come in some type of, of larger bill. Uh, in the end, we may get it through the House. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, as a single bill, but in the end, if, if, it, if it actually gets signed into law, it would have to be part of a bigger piece. Uh, I don't expect 
the Dems to negotiate on behalf of it. And so uh, it just depends on if they continue to use reconciliation or if they uh, use a bipartisan process. Yeah, your counterpart, John Bozeman, yesterday told the National Cotton Council he's worried about the new farm bill funding because as the climate change policy may threaten some of the funding in the CCC, and that probably plays right into your measure supported by others to boost that you know, borrowing authority to $68 billion because, uh, you know, Bozeman said yesterday, you'll hear that that climate change is paid for, but it doesn't, that it doesn't cost anything, but he's concerned. Well, that's right. And one of the other concerns we have is the $30 billion that's sitting at USDA that was, it was earmarked for producers that is, uh, that has now had a hold put on it. And it appears that they may be shifting that towards uh, some type of climate change funding. And so, as you know, uh, the majority of the farmers around the country have had a very hard time with with uh, cash flow because of commodity prices, uh, whether it be coronavirus related or or simply market related. And so uh, they unfortunately have been dependent on the payments and no farmer that I know wants to be dependent on the payments. But without those payments, a lot of people would not be would not be farming today. And uh, Congressman Austin Scott, apologize I didn't set up the front end of that uh, quite well enough. He was talking about whether or not there would be support in Congress to increase uh, the CCC borrowing level to 60 or $68 billion, as uh, has been proposed. Um, and, and you're right, Jim, there, there is that concern that that CCC money and even maybe uh, CFAP money may be converted into use for uh, climate initiatives. Yeah, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see. Uh, any changes. And I think that'll show, that'll be the clear signal I'm looking for of how this administration and USDA and Democratic Farm State lawmakers, uh, their key issues ahead. Uh, but overall, uh, the Commodity Credit Corporation Charter Act, again, has a maximum borrowing authority of $30 billion. But this issue goes back to, what, the last two years in which Farm Bureau and others proposed a big, what, $68 billion you know, maximum borrowing authority. That's probably going to be needed because of uh, protecting the traditional approach of farm program payments, CRP, uh, ARC, you know, PLC payments, uh, et cetera, on top of an increasing number of farm state and other lawmakers' requests to tap the CCC, even Vilsack, uh, for the uh, you know, carbon uh, you know, bank program relative to climate change. So this is probably going to be one of the key issues from a funding mechanism for the business of agriculture and policy ahead, John. And we should point out that that $68 billion number does not just come out of thin air. It is the $30 billion, $30 billion originally authorized for CCC adjusted for inflation. That's how Farm Bureau got to the $68 billion number. Uh, before we get too far separated from the uh, um, payments for minority farmers included in that COVID relief uh, proposal, I want to read this comment we got in from Margo. Um, it's kind of long, but I think it's important. Um, interest, interesting, this discussion that all is owed Native people and people of color is a verbal apology. My family lost our two granted land due to the fact that we were not legally defined as white. If you don't want to forgive a farm loan, then pay us our fair market value of the 1,000 plus acres that were lost in Los Angeles County and Orange County. And that's the point I was trying to make is that there are definitely farmers because of ethnicity were disadvantaged. Um, and so um, I think there is uh, a smart way to be done to advantage them um, in some cases uh, going forward to, to try to make up for some of that. And, and not only to try to make up for some of that, but, but there is a value in having a, more diversity in U.S. agriculture. And let's face it, there's not a great amount of diversity in U.S. agriculture uh, right now, particularly on the ownership side. So. Um, I, I think there is, is much more discussion to be had on this, but I think there's discussion that needs to be had before we rush into a proposal like this that, as you point out, Jim, is probably not going to hold up well in the courts. No. And we'll try to get John Boyd is, is head of the National Black Farmers Association yeah, for, him on, yeah. for, for that. I think we should have him on to uh, air out the, the issues because he brings a lot of history to this and he knows about the Pickford case, you know, like the back of his hand. I will send him an invitation for next week. If we don't get him next week, we sure. will try to get him on very soon. Okay. 
Uh, moving on down the list, let's talk about that CFAP money. Uh, any new word, Jim, on what's happening there or if we will see a change in how it is uh, sent out um, compared to what the Trump administration had planned? Well, we got the signal from Austin Scott that he yeah. suspects a potential change. You have uh, Stabenow's, uh, some of her people getting into FSA. So that's another potential uh, signal. Maybe we'll get some additional funding because, you know, whenever you spend this much money, uh, you can find it as well. So I, I'm not going to rule out you know, finding additional money uh, that they didn't know. Remember in the waning days of the Trump administration when they said up to $2.3 billion, that, that total could actually go up. So to answer your question, John, no, but the initial indications suggest we could see some changes. And, and Jim, have we heard anything from USDA on when they're going to do what I call CFAP3, you know, the $20 per acre for, you know, all the... The normal crops, I'm going to call it the normal ag crops, not the specialty crops. Have we heard any guidance on when that might happen? Well, other none other than their original indication to, if you called them, uh, to either late this month or, or early uh, uh, you know, March, uh, because they have to write some, you know, uh, programs and things like that. But that shouldn't be too much of a problem for them. So no. uh, I should have said um, sometime in 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 March. Uh, I think it's going to take that 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 long to, you yeah. know, to to do one because you know, whenever you work with uh, tech people, it takes them forever, yeah. you know, and to, no to, to write programs. And no chance that the uh, stimulus bill coming out probably in mid to late March would change any of those numbers that were written in on the CAA back in December? I, I never say no in this town, but I'm not hearing it at this particular time. But okay. it looks like the Democrats' timeline is to get this latest COVID aid package prior to March the 13th because that's when those unemployment benefits end. So there's yeah. your timeline right yeah. there. And remember yeah. last week's show, John, when I said it's going to come later rather than sooner, because yeah. when you when you go through budget reconciliation, it is not a fast process because of what we're seeing unfold now here from an education perspective. You have 11 or 12 different committees, agriculture being one of them, that has to mark up their jurisdictional areas that's embodied in the budget reconciliation language. And it just takes time. I don't blame them, but it just takes time. So we're not gonna see that unfold for at least another few weeks. Yeah, the Agriculture Committee has long touted itself as being the most bipartisan committee on the Hill, particularly the House Agriculture Committee. Um, we saw that really fall, well, it's been falling apart for a while. It was really left in tatters after the last farm bill. Now we see this episode this week um, with a very partisan hearing. Uh, is that era done, Jim? I think it is, regretfully. Hope I'm wrong. But uh, you saw it got pretty raw during the last farm bill debate on the House mm -hmm. side uh, between Peterson and Mike Conaway. Two gentlemen, usually, but it got to raw uh, issues relative to the food stamp program and, and, and uh, nutrition funding. Now, in the Senate, you had yeah, Pat didn't, didn't those two guys really get caught in the crossfire of their leadership? It got pretty personal even behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, I wish I could say otherwise, but there, there are lingering feelings. Really? Uh, on, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then on the Senate side, Pat Roberts went out of his way uh, to cooperate with, uh, you know, Debbie Stabenow, and that means billions of dollars for programs of which she got. She's a good negotiator, specialty crops, uh, urban agriculture, etc. So that relationship went quite well. Um, so now it remains to be seen now how the Senate Agriculture Committee, because you've already seen John Bozeman is not, yeah. not Pat Roberts. I yeah. mean, he's calling it, I think, like it was before. So we're going to have some more, uh, more than kerfuffles, if, if you will, on the Senate Ag Committee. It's a new day, John. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily a, a, a good thing, though. Um, it, it has been nice to see uh, some, some, some lively discussion, but... Um, movement towards protection of agriculture in those committees. And, and now it's getting caught up in some of the other larger partisan fights. Yes, true. Um, 
Uh, let's see what have we got left on the list. Let's talk Biden and G. They had their first uh, phone call today, told it lasted two hours. What do we know about this phone call between the president of the United States and his Chinese adversary? Well, as I said on AgriTalk, remember when Trump talked to Xi, the Democrats wanted to, for them to release the transcript to see what they really talked about. Well, I'd love to see the transcript to see, to see how the relationship really is. Bottom line, I think uh, uh, Biden's smart politically. He's using this as when he said, uh, if we don't do something big, big, on uh, infrastructure, they're going to uh, eat our lunch relative to infrastructure. He went into their train technology and other technologies in, in energy, et cetera. So uh, they're gonna begin rolling out next week uh, their infrastructure package. And unlike the Trump administration, they're not gonna do it about 10 times. I think it's uh, they're ready to go on infrastructure. That's what I'm reading, uh, John, that he, he took uh, you know several approaches, uh, but it's still a very uh, contentious relationship between our, our two countries, uh, especially when you get into the ge geopolitical potential mine fields of uh, Taiwan, the South China Sea, uh, et cetera. So, but he's, he's gonna use the initial uh, telephone conversation to then call our allies and try to get a coordinate, a coordinated policy uh, relative to uh, moving China in the Western, uh, you know, you know, position on some of these sensitive issues. Um, you know, good luck. <laughs> good luck indeed. In the meantime, China continues to buy. Uh, we've uh, seen more corn and soybean purchases yet. USDA and the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Export or World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimate or WASD uh, just put 50 million bushels in the corn column. Um, so added 50 million bushels to exports to China, took 50 million bushels off of the ending stocks and really uh, kind of disappointed the markets, Jim. Yeah, they and I don't know, the market didn't believe USDA the month before. Uh, and then so I don't know why they're believing them now, but you know how traders are. Yeah. Uh, USDA had, when you look at their total number, now, I only get this from Brian Grady, a pro farmer. It's it's going to be a fairly aggressive poll to get our corn exports out to even meet their current projection. So maybe reality is setting in relative to that number. Uh, but I will tell you that just remember a month ago, USDA cut corn exports 100 million bushels. Now they increased it, you know, 50. Uh, so I, I don't know. That's that's a subjective. Uh, it's not based on any survey or it's a forecast. It's just their assumptions. And but if China continues to purchase U.S. corn, if you see these daily sales, uh, th they could have to up that corn export estimate in the months ahead, John. And I, I think also the key is sales are one thing. Shipments are what's important. And until you actually get the shipments, you know, maybe USDA's maybe they're not that far off because you know like i think brian was saying you know the shipments just haven't really caught up uh, as as much as the sales have been yes and now we're going into the you know winter months that you have to you can have some you know snags in the system yep. so yep. i think i'm not going to fault him too much for the uh, export forecast at this particular time but they finally got into the realistic arena relative to their forecast of total China corn imports because it was a laugher uh, for months. And I, I, I've never seen the world board be so uh, uh, wrong so long with the number. And it's, I don't like to see that, but I do think that they need to regroup on on why they did, you know, what they did for, for many months. When you talk to almost anybody in our great US grain trade and they were 20, 25 million tons or larger for China total corn imports and USDA held at that 7 million tons for too long. Yeah, and the shift was about a third of what the market expected, yet still we had corn ending that day, uh, the nearby just over 550. So you can't complain too much. No, you're course, not. And of course, you know, this is the month where they're getting the crop insurance discovery price and there might be an incentive to get that price down a little bit. I'm not saying that, but uh, you know, there could be a little bit of an incentive there. Well, so, some some uh, conspiratorial people say that uh, 
uh, some seed company people like to see it go up. So they'll sell more, <laughs> more seed or uh, for more sales for the grain company. So, uh, you know, it it is what it is. You yeah, know. It, it is what it is. All right. Well, gentlemen, I didn't give you a warning on this, Paul, but we end every week talking about what we're going to be watching uh, for Signal in the next week. I'll start with Jim Wiesmeyer. Where are you going to be looking for that signal this week? Well, World Ag, the USDA Ag Outlook Forum is next uh, week, I think the 18th or 19th. 18th, yeah. Yeah. And so we're going to have to look at their S&Ds for their first, you know, not, uh, I guess, official. We had some in November, but this is what the market focuses on. Uh, What is their acreage? Because we've got an acreage battle with corn and soybeans. We saw the cotton, National Cotton Council came out this week with uh, showing what cotton acres down 5.2%, I want to say. So we'll have to see what are their yield assumptions, what are their price assumptions. So that's going to be a key focus. Then we'll also see post the uh, uh, Senate impeachment trial, what's the lay of the land in the Senate? Did they go after the 14th Amendment? And will we start freeing up time in the Senate for much needed you know, votes on the nomination uh, hearings to get some of these cabinet people uh, in place, including, as you said, Vilsack and Michael Regan. And hopefully getting an idea of what the true priorities are of the Biden administration, um, what their congressional priorities are, as we see uh, the time start to free up, hopefully. middle Absolutely. I know where I'm going to be watching for Signal. Be watching it for, I always watch people smarter than me. So Paul Neifer, Joe Vaklovic, Chip Flory next week at Top Producer Summit. We'll all be there on Tuesday. Look forward to seeing you there, Paul. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to getting there. All right. So where are you going to be watching for Signal this next week, Paul? I, I think for me, it's still this uh, PPP thing dealing with the gross income, whether it applies for partnerships. If that does, you know, there's going to be thousands or hundreds of thousands of more loans that are going to be available under the PPP program for farmers. What's your hunch? Do you think they'll do it? I think... I think there's a good chance they will do it. Uh, you know, there's nothing in the law that says they couldn't do it. So I, I think it's just whether they have an incentive to maybe, you know, help buy a little bit more farmers' votes. There you go. All right, well, again, a reminder that if you want to join the conversation, we do this. We, we record at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central every Friday afternoon. And you can watch live and participate at the AgriTalk Facebook page. We hope to see you there. Next Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, right here for DC, Signal to Noise.